When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 33. Wildlife cinematographer Jeff Hogan has been filming and photographing wildlife around the world for over 30 years, earning numerous awards for his work, including several Emmy nominations for cinematography. Being a naturalist at heart, Jeff's passion is to witness wildlife behavior and to get a privileged view into the secret lives of wildlife, capturing intimate images that illustrate the unique stories that abound throughout the natural world. Jeff resides in the heart of the Yellowstone ecosystem with his wife Karen and son Finn, with homes in both Jackson Hole, Wyoming and Silvergate, Montana. Living at the doorstep of both Yellowstone and the Grand Teton National Parks, Jeff often captures behavioral sequences rarely witnessed in the wild. Bringing these images and stories to the screen is Jeff's goal, with the understanding and hope that society will respond with a desire to conserve, protect, and treasure our incredible natural world, and restore our wild lands to complete intact ecosystems once again. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking the time out to come on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. Um, I was going to say, how are you this morning? And I still will, but I do know that you had a tree fall on your house. So uh, I'm really glad that you obviously got over that and you're with us here this morning. How's it going? Uh, everything is going great. Thanks for having me. Um, the house I built myself um, and I made it very, very rugged, strong. And uh, so when this huge tree fell on it, it uh, really did little damage just a couple little dents on the metal roof so i'm i'm uh, pretty happy that it's pretty much unscathed well that, house, that's so. nice it can be traumatic if they're big trees and we had to remove a big cottonwood from our front yard a few years ago because it had the potential of going through and taking the entire kitchen out so uh, we took the tree out before that happened so i'm glad to hear there's no damage that's good yeah, and I'm a real tree hugger, so I was. People have been telling me you better get that tree out of there, and um, or the trees it's in the thick forest. And I'm like, nah, you know, I can build a new house, but I can't build a new tree. Oh uh, well, that's yeah, not. Really I, I like that. Well, and you built the house to withstand it, by the sounds of things. So, so it's that's all right. good. Absolutely. It's all good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jeff, um, the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast is all about inspiring aspiring filmmakers. And um, you have a long history as a camera person in the industry. Uh, I would love to know, and I'm sure all of our listeners would love to know, how what what was the, the thing that got you into wildlife filmmaking? Was it that you dreamt about this uh, from a young child? Or did you get into this industry some other way? Yeah, well, it, it all started for, with me with just a passion of spending time in the field, watching animals, 
and um, always wanting to see their behavior, which was so difficult to do. And, um, and I must say that I have to give a lot of um, credit to my aunt on my dad's side. She was, she taught me how to move through the woods in Maine. And uh, man, she just was incredible. And so that was part of it. And, and throughout my life, I just would go out in the woods. I take dates out into the woods to track deer, you know? Nice. Um, not that everybody wanted a second date, but, you know, this was my passion. <laughs> and I found myself out in Wyoming, you know, in my very early 20s, trying to think, how can I hang out in the woods here watching all these animals? Out here in Wyoming, it's, the wildlife is so abundant and, and visible. Why? Well, I, I couldn't stay out of the woods, but I needed to make money. So I figured, how can I do this? Hey, I'll buy a camera. You know, So I bought a used camera and started shooting stills. And that got me started. And from there, um, while I was shooting my stills, boom, 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 You know, um, I met this guy, Jeff Foote who's a, a filmmaker for Survival Anglia back in the day, you know, working with the Roots and those guys. Yeah, and, yeah. and he gave me some advice. He says, you know, just don't shoot stills, shoot natural history stories of each species. When you, and so I did that. My first species were the rough grouse. So I tried to shoot everything that rough grouse do in their, in their life. Uh, that caught a little bit of attention, but it was the great gray owl that I spent six months on, on my own nickel, just shooting everything they do. And uh, I saw, so I filmed the courtship, the nesting. And then once the chicks left the nest, I was able to follow them until for probably another um, four, three or four months. And um, even though they could fly, I would, I would go find them, you know? And so uh, I documented their whole life history and that caught the attention um, of Jeff Foote, who was my mentor then. And, um, and he's like, wow, help me make a film on these owls. And so uh, that kind of got me started in the, in the filming department. And, and yeah. what, what year was that when you, when you picked up that camera and started telling stories with it? You know, my great grace shooting the stills was in 1987. And, uh, and so in 1989 is the first time that Jeff put me to work behind a, a camera. So, Maybe. I mean, back in those days, it was far harder to go and film something, take pictures or film it, and get it seen by anyone. So it was very much your your friend, your colleague, your mentor, who had those avenues that could you know, nurture your, your skill at that point. Yeah. You know, he gave me my, um, uh, an opportunity to, to, um, to know how the cameras work, you know, and, and I knew what it took to spend time in the field. That was the easy part. And, uh, but I had to learn the, you know, how to shoot, you know, let your subject come into frame, follow it, let it go out of frame, different camera angles, focal lengths, the very basics and he taught me all this stuff and while we would drive or move from location to location he'd always be throwing me these lessons you nice. know yeah one of the most important ones was do as i say not as i do <laughs> right and and he'd also say waste film not light which yeah, really did yep. stick with me 
And um, yeah, and so, you know, that helped get me started in the industry. And then um, with the work I did with Jeff, um, I was able to hook up with uh, Mark Shelley and Monterey with uh, C Studios. And, um, and he was a whole different sort of mentor. His, he was a little more, I have to say, flamboyant and, and right. social. Yeah. Whereas Jeff was you know, a bit of a Buddhist and you know, he was just quiet, never yeah. brought attention to himself, but he was a master behind the camera and, and in life in general. He was just beautiful soul. And Mark is the same beautiful soul in a much different way. And they're both two of my best friends now. Nice. I have to give both of those guys credit for my existence in this world as it is today, yeah. you know, for me would you say that um you, you mentioned there that you spent you know tons of time in the woods that was how you grew up you took your dates there mm -hmm. and then of course picking up a camera would you say it made it so much easier because we've we've heard this before and I, I tell people this a lot that you know it's it's more your connection with nature that's so important when you pick a camera up because learning behavior of animals learning to how to act around animals not put yourself in dangerous situations etc cetera, etc cetera, takes far longer to learn than the actual technology. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, the camera part really, I think is, um, it's a discipline for sure. You know, but, and I think really the, um, my biggest challenge with gear is just to get my hands on it and also get my hands on gear that is um, quality that, you know, gives you the image quality that you need. And so I've always been struggling to just keep up, you know, because that takes financial resources, yeah. you know, so that was a big struggle. But to actually use it, um, sometimes you got to make it work with the tools you have. And so maybe I, my tripod's not as big as the one I want or my lens isn't as long or fast, you know, but you kind of have to learn to make do with the tools you have. Um, whatever that takes. And th that's the other lesson is to make it in this business, you've got to do whatever it takes, period. And of course you need, there's ethics that's, that work into this, but it's more so that it's, it's a lot of work, dedication, focus. And as soon as you get lazy on any of these um, disciplines, you're going to fall behind. There's yeah. going to be somebody who can will pass you up. So you really have to do whatever it takes um, to make it work. I, sure. I think that's so valid because, you know, <clears throat> the the gear is not the kind of uh, the barrier to entry anymore. I mean, we can buy cameras, right. phones even, that take extraordinary images. And it used to be, yeah, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, really the gear was the barrier to entry. I mean, you had to spend yeah. 100 grand on a F900 and, and, you know, it was that was the camera for wildlife filmmaking or, you know, whatever other cameras there were at that time that were being used, but there were a lot of money. Now we can all pretty much buy a camera that's going to work and and be able to take the images necessary for good programming but it's the skills as you say learning how to you know have an animal come in and out of frame and follow it and, and put sequences together and we hear this all the time mm -hmm. with camera people. absolutely sequences tell stories and without those yeah. it's just not compelling so 
Now, as we're speaking about gear, let's let's go a little further because, I mean, it, it's one of those things today. I know gear is, and the technology, is right at the forefront of wildlife filmmaking now in terms of telling stories in a different way. You know, I know a lot of networks love to have, you know, drones and gimbals and shot overs and all these new ways to tell stories. And I know that one of your special specialties right now is... Um, is camera trapping, 4K camera trapping. Tell us a little bit, well, well, first of all, tell us about your specialties. Are there spe other specialties as well as camera trapping? And then just go into a little bit of detail about how you use those. Yeah, I think the first thing is, is my desire to capture um, behavior. You know, I want to be a fly on the wall. And oftentimes um, your presence is just too much, is whatever, presence that you have it's just too much and that's where i had to go and really i had to start building my own camera traps because i really didn't have any quality ones when i started yeah and uh but what that allowed was for me to film by beavers chewing down trees at night in infrared so beavers just would not let me yeah. do that very often right and then uh the other thing was um cougars that's really my big passion nowadays. And so the cougars, you know, I've been filming them from a blind, you know, 70 yards from a kill. And it's a permanent blind I've built that's basically a house up in, in the trees. Amazing. And they know I'm there. And yep. most of these cats know me. We've been working together now for four winters in a row. And, uh, but they're still, if I make, I buttoned one of my snaps on my winter coat. And that mom spun her head around my dear F-61, who no longer is being studied and has no collars. But right. um, she just stared at me for five minutes because of the snap. And she and, had, she, uh, did she have kittens with her at the time? You said mom. She had one kitten. Yeah. Um, and the kitten have just carried on as if nothing happened. But, yep. you know, and she she returned to doing her thing. But, you know. Um, it was the camera traps when I'm gone that really give me the fly on the wall uh, behavior. And with the new 4K and my lighting that I've been developing, you, you know, over the years and, and also now with the new cameras, you know, now I'm shooting some beautiful cameras that you can set up that shooting low light nicely so my lights don't have to be blasting. And they can be spread out to cover a really wide scene. And, and um, you know, and the best people in the industry, you know, for post are giving me all the settings for my cameras to give me the, you know, the best results, nice. you know, for, and they have, they have the budget to, you know, to color correct and all that to make it really look good. So, yeah, um, yeah the camera traps are very, very, they're a very important part of my, uh, my life right now so um when you're i mean you said your blind is a permanent blind you obviously know the lions are there and that's a, a place they frequent regularly how mm -hmm. much collaboration do you have with biologists in the area mountain lion biologists etc to help you track those lions well now um the cats i'm following are not being studied they have. They were part of Panthera's study for 17 years, yeah. and that's where I worked with Panthera for 
and made two films with them. Um, we're all really, really close, good friends. And But this one cat in particular that I've been filming over the years when she was collared and was raising children, you know, kids. Um, now I know her behaviors. I know her her winter habitat, her where she hangs out. Yeah. Um, and it's on private property, most of it. And which I have exclusive rights to hang out there, and uh, and I kind of let that cat come to me now. Even though I'll go track her, and I'll see what she's doing. I'll set up cameras along her travel routes. But I, I've learned over the years. It's like you got to know when you cannot take that one more step forward. You got to take that. You got to take a step back instead, and give them room to breathe. And that's what I think I found the fine line with this female and we're really working close together. And, um, and I think because of that, like when I do go sit in a blind, I'll only spend a few, the first few hours of the night in the blind. Then I get out of there. As soon as she's done feeding, she goes off to bed. I get out of there. She knows I'm gone. And then she'll come back. She'll hang around until nine o'clock the next morning. So my cameras are getting daylight 4k camera incredible behavioral footage and um but if i spend the night in that blind she'll leave before before it gets light enough for me to shoot you know so it's like so you know i think that's a really big key whether or not no matter what you do with what gear you're using whether you're off of sticks or with camera traps you really got to know where to find that fine line where the animal is comfortable with your presence and um but and you're and she's also allowing you to um capture the footage that you need well and that's that's great i mean it is showing your respect for each other Mm. but certainly respect for the animal giving her her space so important but understanding the behavior again i mean you just would not be able to do what you're doing without the, your insight and your years of experience with those cats and, and their behavior. And that, that's so unbelievably important in this industry. Um, and of course, with lions, I mean, I know having worked with lions for many, many years, that of course, we know they hang around their food, they'll come and eat, and then they'll go off just mm-hmm. a few hundred yards, and they'll bed down, and you can typically find their bed within a couple of hundred yards, and come back mm-hmm. in. And, and for you to give her her space, knowing that otherwise, you're going to alter her behavior is amazing. I mean, that that's what it's all about. And that's, that's the respect we should have for the wildlife that we film. Going going back to your collaboration, how important would you say it is for wildlife filmmakers to have those collaborations with biologists, with the people who are studying the animals? You know, what what when you first were looking at doing this and you made those connections, how did that change your understanding of the behavior of animals and just your understanding in general of that species? Um, you know, these guys I love the science world. Um, and that's where you get your stories. When you learn these secret, you know, discoveries that these researchers are making, it's like, just blows me away. The amount of work they do and the stories they come up with and what little attention they actually get for all of this work. Right. Um, and so I'm really thankful for them for passing on this info and, you know, working with me on these films. And I do want to bring these people onto the screen and you know, be part of the film. I want them to tell the stories of what 
they're learning and what they're seeing and what these cats mean to them, you know. Um, but it's, it's so important to, you know, learn as much as you can about your subject, any species, before you even head into the field. And, and talk to the science people, what you should do or what you shouldn't do, you know, what you can do, what you can't, you know, all of this stuff um, is, is a really smart move to make. Because the last thing you want to do is, is just go running out into the world of the wildlife, the cats, whatever, and you just scatter them all. You know, you just, you know, and, you know, and the, and the wildlife could just move somewhere else and, and it could just, you know, ruin a story that you have, that was laid out in front of you. So the big thing is to sit back and just watch for a while. Just give it, just watch, listen to the research guys, go out and bushwhack in the woods. But, you know, when you see something that looks like an intense special scene, you really got to know whether to back up a bit or whether you can, you know, infiltrate with a camera trap. Um, and I just think that takes experience as well as, you know, communicating with people who have already done it, Absolutely. you know, learn what you can. Yeah. You know, but the um, one thing I say about when those cats move a few hundred yards away to bed down during the day, those beds, I'll leave those cats. I won't go there. So what I'll do is I'll find a bed site right near the kill that they'll utilize um, while they're feeding. And so then they'll feed. And as a matter of fact, with the cats, they're taking turns. Mom feeds, then the kitten feeds, they pass. And they might go in and have these little caves right near that kill that because the snow out here, we have so much snow that creates these little caves under the bushes. And, and so um, I'll set cameras up there. And so what I try not to do is, is push them away, you know, give them their space so, and let them come to me. Let them come to the setup and not push the setup on to them. And it really seems to be paying off. That's fantastic. And I'll mention just at this point that there's uh, there's a couple of really good books by Chris Palmer, who you are probably aware of. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker and uh, I think Shooting in the Wild. And they're great books about his career mm-hmm. over the years of of the ethics of wildlife filmmaking and and really when in the early days where there were there was no ethical wildlife filmmaking and how much we've learned since then and and i think they're they're very good resources because it shows that you know the how important it is to understand wildlife and, and to as you say respect it so you're getting the behavior that's telling a real story rather than trying to create a story out of something it's not really happening um and, and giving the animals their space to capture that behavior that otherwise, as you say, you scare them away. Um, and also going back to what you said about getting the scientists on, on film so they can, you know, be recognized for their work. So very important. I think the, the first episode of uh, of the podcast, we had Rick Rosenthal, the marine biologist and, and mm-hmm. cinematographer. And Rick said, as a marine biologist, he wrote uh, numerous papers as a scientist and he said 12 people read them. And then he became a filmmaker. And to date, about a billion people have watched his his shows. So, you know, when you look at, I mean, obviously those are exaggerated figures. But but from that point of view, he said, you know, he could make far more of an impact put, picking up a camera uh, than writing those papers at times. So it's so important to bring the scientists into it. Going back to your camera traps, um, what are the cameras you're using in those? Are you using small mirrorless cameras, uh, DSLRs? Yes. Um I'm using Sony's. 
Um, I've got four A6300s. Yep. Um, because of their 4K ability, and they're fairly, you know, if a cat chews on one, it's not the end of the world. Right. I also have an A7S2 and an A7S3. Yep. Um, so those come in handy uh, as well. And I try to use the A7S3 um, with the uh, Ninja 5 um, on a, a long lens if I can shoot from a blind and stuff. So, But that also comes in handy as a camera trap if I need. Um, and then I use the cam traptions for motion sensors and, and all that. And then my lights are, I just, I've built a lot of lights and I buy a lot of lights and um, and it's all like low 10 watt lights and things. And, and I, I can scatter those lights all around and light up a scene um, if I have time. Yeah. Um, I do set them up during the day. So I don't know exactly what I'm going to see because mm-hmm. I want to be long gone before the cats move in, yeah. before they want. I don't want them waiting for me. And that while it's dark out, you know, and, um, and so, yeah, I've, I've learned kind of how to paint a scene, even though it's daytime. And, uh, and then just these cats don't mind my white lights. It's amazing. Um, them. They'll just come sit right in front of them and snooze when they yeah. could move three or four feet off to the side and be in the shade. Yeah. And, and um, they could pull, pull the carcass away into the shadow I mean, I've Mm -hmm. always found that incredible, but they really don't mind. So many animals we have to film with infrared or using Mm -hmm. a red light that typically doesn't, uh, uh, you know, worry them so much. But it's incredible that cougars just seem to accept the white light, sit in it and be quite happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm getting quite a quite a number of different species coming in on these kills to utilize the cougar kills and uh, and they don't mind the white lights as well. The only thing I'm having trouble with is wolves, but I don't think I couldn't get wolves in on my infrared. I, I just can't get wolves anywhere near my gear. And I think they just smell it. Yeah. But they're traveling right through this. And basically my blind is overlooking what I call it the killing fields. It's a big, huge meadow, you know, surrounded with um, cottonwoods on one side and a river there. And then there's, you know, a hillside with a dense uh, old growth evergreens with bug firs and spruce. And uh, and then there's hawthorn bushes that are really thick that the cats travel through. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and um, so, so that, that's kind of yeah, and so, and so in terms of specializing, because it sounds like you're—I mean, obviously you film in that location a lot, which is why you've built that hide. Um, You're—I know you filmed the Yellowstone ecosystem is very much one of your main areas to film. How mm-hmm. how important do you think it is to have a niche, if you like, to specialize either you know with location or species? You know, we've been talking about how cameras are far more accessible now there's a lot of skilled people in the field coming into this industry how important do you think it is to have those niches you know whether it is a location or whether it is a species yeah i think the thing is is um the more you get to know both location and species the more you can um maybe pick up and and identify like ah here's a unique shot i don't think everyone's anyone's got before and it's going to be because of this moment the situation 
this is might be easy for me, or at least possible. I'm going to give it a shot, whether it's with a GoPro or a camera trap or to sit on my sticks. And so the more you know your, your backyard, your uh, ecosystem, and your species you're filming, you know, the easier it's going to be to identify these precious opportunities that pop up in front of you every now and then. And, um, and, and the ecosystem I'm surrounded by is so rich that I'll never run out of opportunities here. You know, I'll, I'll never be done. Yeah, that's amazing. And as you say, the more you spend around a particular species or even a particular individual, the more it starts to, you know, it's like a, a flower opening up to you and you start to see this behavior that may not have been seen before, um, which is, which is, and if you're there with a camera and you're able to capture that, it becomes incredible. Plus you become the go-to person. I mean, I'm sure you're contacted you know, specifically for mountain lion, you know, footage, because you are doing that. That's your thing. You're specializing in the networks. Know that. Is that a case for you? Yeah. And, and I've been a bit selfish with my footage over the past four winters. I'm just trying to collect all the footage I can and save it for a film. Yeah. Um, I did um, tie into an outfit um, for the last half of last winter who asked me to cooperate with them and I, and I have. And so that'll turn into maybe a really nice sequence and not a film, but it could also lead to um, a film with them as well. Cause I must say I, the last half of last winter was, I captured as much footage as all three winters prior. Right. And, uh, and so the story that I was, um, that was developing and evolving in front of my eyes really came together last winter. So it's ready for the film. And I get one more winter would really, really bring it around full circle. Um, Yeah. It's, it's really a a great thing here. We got going there. It's fantastic when that happens. I, I film a lot of black bears in urban environments and there are moments where I can film for months and get, you know, so a handful of, of decent footage and I can have one or two or three nights where I can film for six hours straight and get the best footage I have within a cluster of hours better than I've got in the last two years, you know. But it, it's it's that commitment to your craft and being there that means that you become a specialist in your field and you get that footage and then it becomes worth something because you're building those stories and without that it's very hard for you know someone say come in from the uk and come and sit you know where i would sit and get that footage because it's not going to happen you know over the course of two weeks and um and that's so important yeah and that's the other thing is being that i live right there I literally am out in the field almost every single day of the year, maybe at least a few hours a day. And so I'm scouting around, looking around. And, you know, there's a lot of days it's just, you know, I'm having a quick look and then I'm, I get to go home. And um, what happens is it makes it um, feasible for my clients to hire me and say, hey, give us 10 days of shooting the 10 days you think are the best that, you know, work. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I have so many things to do. Um, you know, I might go out and go, oh, this is good. I just found a situation. I'm going to spend three days for my client here. Perfect. You know, 
they're not they're not spending any money on food or travel other than some mileage for my rig and sure. no lodging. And, you know, we get to put all of the resources, financial resources, into capturing images yeah, and not putting food in our belly and a roof over our head. Right. Well, and, and you're like, you know, uh, uh, two or three people rolled into one because you're, you're the camera person, you're the, the director because you're, you know, you're directing the story at that point and finding the story and building those, those sequences. And you're the fixer, you know, the fixer producer. You're the person who's deciding where to go and, and why to go there and, and it's going to work. And if it doesn't go work, then you, you make it work. And, and that's so valuable rather than just sending a camera person out somewhere and they're not knowing the area. As you say, you, you've got all of those skill sets rolled into one for that environment, which is so unbelievably valuable for a network. Yeah, and it's really important also um, with the wildlife because I can see with my cats, if there's one more person with me, it's just that much more noise i mean when you're by yourself you don't ever talk when you're with somebody you might even just be whispering now and then but you're whispering now and then and so um it's really important to be able to wear all of those hats and and accomplish all of those tasks alone and the other thing is um i can make that decision like you know what i'm going to give these cats some room i've got the footage i need i can spend another night here or more you know the second half of the night, I'm going to leave early, give them some space so that they are still comfortable for the next day, you know? And, yeah. um, and if I have bring in a producer or something, and I've told people, no way, you, no producers, I can't do it. And I don't think they really understand why, but there's a really good reason for it. Yeah. And um, they get, can get upset with you. Like, well, forget it. We're not going to hire you if we can't look over your shoulder. And but the thing is, the reason why they're coming to me is because I am getting this footage. That's right. So I don't need them there to get this footage. And as a matter of fact, if they do show up, chances are we won't we'll get less footage. And um, and so you do need that to be able to wear all of those hats. And you still always have to remember that you might get really relaxed. You're getting so much great footage and the cats don't even look at you. But you take that one step too close and boom. It's gone. Yeah. Gone. And, and when you have someone else with you and, you know, they open an energy bar, <laughs> right? you know, right, a crackle a thing, or as you say, do a button up or something. And it's, it, it's that extra amount of, I mean, we all, as humans, we all want to move and stretch and, you, you know, and, and keep warm in those scenarios. When it's just you, you have complete control over that. And mm-hmm. not someone tapping you on the shoulder to say, can, can I open this energy bar because I'm getting pretty hungry? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Right. They, they don't understand that it's hours of not moving in a blind. Right. Yeah. So yeah. very valid. Now, now, you've worked with not only just wildlife, but you've worked with uh, hosts and presenters. I know on your Hi. resume, you've worked with uh, Chris Morgan, who's been on the, on the podcast, and uh, Sir David Attenborough. What, right. what would you say is the fundamental difference between working alone with wildlife and then and then working with human beings and actually having humans on camera, you know, and presenters and what have you? You, you know, what what do you prefer? What what are the differences and what's easier? 
You know, my real passion is just to spend time out in the field by myself with the animals. Yeah. But it's really refreshing and wonderful to hang out with another human right. every now and then. You know, spending time with Chris Morgan out in the field at the Beaver Pond, you know, and and prom, and I mean. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. It was lovely, you know, but it's really not my forte. That's really not what I do. But we we had fun. We did a great job. Um, although I must say, David Attenborough, I'll drop anything to go hang out with him. And I was really fortunate to spend, you know, three days in the field filming David and those his small, good old crew of, you know, the Sticky, the sound guy, and Mike Salisbury, the producer, and you know, those three were telling me stories over pizza and fine wine in my little studio apartment, you know, uh, while they were there telling me stories for the past 30 years of them hanging out together. And it's like, you know, what kind of, it doesn't get better than that. Right. You know? And uh, so that was a huge highlight working with David Attenborough. And, and I get to see Attenborough and, and, uh, and Barack Obama had a chat. Right. Um, you know, they yep. had a little interview and on TV. They were showing some footage. And there was a few shots of mine in this from our shoot at the Beaver Pond with David. And uh I was that was one of my highlights of my life was to see this. But these two guys had had a couple of my shots on the screen that, you know. It's incredible that someone like yourself who has been working in the industry for decades you know, you still get super excited when your footage is used like that. And, um, you know, your footage has been, you've been on all networks. You've worked on some of the most prestigious landmark series there there are. And you're still excited about two of your clips being used, you know, in an interview, which is fantastic. I mean, that just shows the passion that we all have for, uh, you know, for this um, this work. And I think that's that's so essential. You know, it's it's when you're when you see your work being used like that and making a difference, it, it's everything, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, it really is wonderful that, you know, it's noticed because most of my life I'm just in the field. I don't even meet other cameramen you know i don't somebody calls me up and says oh hey i've heard all about you and i'm like how where who are you <laughs> right i usually i'm like i don't know how anyone even knows i exist right uh, um and so it's kind of nice to know that your work might actually be appreciated and is being seen um yeah that's wonderful i really even i really see the shows i work on you know, I think we're, most of us are the same as in this industry. I mean, most of, you know, when I was a presenter, um, we used to watch the shows. I personally watched them because I wanted to learn about, you know, my, my traits as a presenter and how I could improve. Um, but these days, it's very hard to keep up on where your footage goes, how it's used. And just having the time in general. I have two small children. We we don't have a TV in the house. We'll watch you know Netflix or you know some and a, a video on demand app of some mm -hmm. sort to get our entertainment. But we just don't do it very often. And I think so many of us in this field are the same because our hours are not nine to five. When was the last time you did a nine to five day, Jeff? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that. Doesn't sound like any fun, does it? Ever. Yeah, I think the last time 
really was um, when I used to build houses 30 years ago or so. Right. Yeah, no. it's just it's just not one of those things, isn't it? It's far far nicer for your day to start at you know eight p.m. when you're heading out into the snow to go and film a mountain mm-hmm. lion through the night. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Now, now, Jeff, you but filming a lot in the Yellowstone ecosystem. There's a lot of people, both winter and summer, no doubt, way more in the summer, in you know filming, taking photographs, tourists and professionals alike. How do you cope with that as someone who is there all the time filming? What, what What's it like? I mean, do you get upset? Is there lots of like, you know, bad feeling with people shuffling around and getting in the way? Or do you just have areas you go where you, you're not a part of that? Yeah, I'm really not a part of that. Um, there's only a couple of places where I'll actually see another human being. And, um, you know, one of my favorite places was in, Grand Teton National Park at this beaver pond that everybody went to. But, you know, seriously, um, the parts of the pond I'd be at, you know, I might see some people early in the evening and then they just disappear. And most of the time I'm filming by myself. Maybe there's another person around, but most of the time I have my, my locations where, you know, maybe I have a camera assistant with me or a good friend. And um, we've got, we've got our, our species all to ourselves. And I kind of, if being that I'm seeking out to capture wildlife behavior, I really have to go where there are no other humans around because it doesn't take much to alter their behavior, the animal's behavior. So, I, you know, I, I definitely choose and seek out those locations that there's no humans around. Yeah, you're always going to get the best out of the wildlife in in that case. So uh, that's that, that's fantastic. Now, you've been doing this for you know a, a long time. You've got that your your areas down. You know where to go, where to see the wildlife. Um, in your, if you had the choice to go, you know, there was an unlimited budget given to you, and you could just go anywhere in the world no limit on the budget where would you go what what's on your bucket list to film and uh you know location and species wise yeah you know um i i'd love to go back to africa spend some more time mana pools is uh a precious place for me because you can bushwhack at mana pools there's no driving off the roads and and i'm all about bushwhacking i don't want to film from a car and um, so that's one great place. Um, I think I'd spend more time on the coast of British Columbia and the Great Bear Rainforest, which I've been in. And maybe some places in China now, you know. Um, I like to go to some of the remote places in China that uh, are spectacular. Yeah. But, you know, this the whole planet is just full of locations that I'm not even aware of. Right. Or I've already been to. And um well, I could live 10 lifetimes on this planet and I don't know if we could even touch it then, you know? Yeah. So It's incredible, isn't it? And of course, you know, bucket lists are great, you know, wanting to go here, there and everywhere and film wherever in the world. But um, I always like to say to people, you know, new people coming into the industry are always so worried about, well, you know, I can't afford to go to Africa or I can't afford to go to the Amazon. How am I ever going to tell a story? 
Um, I, I, g- give us your answer on this, Jeff. What What would you say to those people who have have now got a camera of some sort and they want to, you know, film something to give an idea of what they're capable of? What would your advice be when they have zero budget um, and they live, you know, wherever they live, uh, but they can't afford to go to Africa or somewhere else? Yeah, you know, there's a story in everybody's backyard or everybody's, you know, nearest park. You don't have to go to Africa. You know, one of my first stories was about the uh, roughed grouse, you know, which is no, you know, exotic, you know, rare bird. And so you can always find something, you know, nesting robins I'll spend time with. And, you know, you could just figure out any story. You can make a story um, or, or identify and capture and tell a story. But you really just got to keep your mind open to what's presented to you out in the field. And then you say, aha, I didn't come here looking for this, but now I see it. This is great. And um, I'll tell this story. And so you really need to start telling stories. It's uh, Filmmaking is storytelling. Each shot should be part of that storytelling. There's a message. There's an emotion in each shot. And you just got to tune into that. And, and the basics of filmmaking will is really what you need. Just the basics of filmmaking, the basics of storytelling. You don't have to get fancy. And you just got to get out there and do it. Awesome. And on that, on that same note, what would you say is the one best piece of advice you would have um, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but what would you have for someone who is looking to do camera work, um, similar to yourself, you know, go out there and, and um, become known for their camera work? What piece of advice could you give someone who's right at the beginning of their journey looking to break into this industry and be noticed in it? Yeah, I would say um, seek out an internship. I've been every I've seen so many people start out as interns at Geographic, BBC, you know, whatever. And next thing you know, they're producing shows for these same outfits. And that really is probably the best way to get started, um, the fastest way. And um, and being that I lived out here in Wyoming, it was impossible for me to intern in, you know, for these outfits. But um you know, that's a good a good way to go. And there'll be other outfits you can intern with as well. Um, yeah. And I, I think to add on to that, it's a very valid point you say about living in Wyoming and not being near anywhere to do that. And I think so many people in the world are in that situation. They're, you, you know, they don't want to move to Bristol or, you know, go, go somewhere where all of these um, uh, internships are. But of course, now the world is so much more open with uh, the distribution channels of YouTube and Vimeo and just being a and social media in general, being able to get your footage out there and uh, and be noticed and, and speaking to some of the researchers at the BBC, Mirica Walker, who was uh, on our uh, last episode, um, that they look through, you know, find that footage on social media and, and those stories happening out there to, to get inspired to uh you know for stories for their their series so um 
you don't have to necessarily do that. I, I agree that's probably the best way because you've got your foot in the door directly. But if you don't have that opportunity, like yourself, you, you had a mentor and, um, yeah. and that helped you uh, get to where you are. Yeah, and, you know, the whole Instagram thing is fantastic because I know a lot of producers who just scan through Instagram. They go, aha, look at this unknown person who's doing incredible night sky time lapses. Let's give them a call. And uh, so that really is a good way to uh, get attention and um, get somebody to ring you up. Yeah, and it, and it shows people who are already doing it. We, they're, they're not the people who are not doing it because they're waiting for a chance to do it, right? You know, there's too too many people, I think, wait, well, well, I need, I need the money or a budget before I can do that because how am I going to afford to do that? Well, it has to be a passion. You have to be out mm-hmm. there. And I think you'll probably agree. I mean, I have clients who, as you say, they'll, they'll say hire you for 10 days or 15 days or whatever. Most of the time, I spend way more time for those clients delivering something I'm proud of and something that fits their, you know, their their bill, um, rather than, you know, going, well, I did the 10 days and, you know, right. we almost got it, but we didn't. Because to me, it's more important that they get what they want. Yeah, it's really, it's really just, it feels good to come through for one. But, you know, you also want to, um, you want the story that they're going to put out there on the screen to be riveting and engaging, you know, um, so that everybody wants more, you know, wildlife films to watch and also to help out the wildlife, the wildlife benefits from all these shows. And, you know, so it's not all about putting the dollar in your pocket. And as far as waiting for the opportunity to comes up, to come up, that's just not going to work in this world. There's too many people, who aren't going to wait and they're going to make it happen one way or the other. And that's really what you got to do is make it happen one way or the other. Um, but still hold on to your ethics and your, you know, your beliefs and yeah. the wild world. Well, well said. Well said, Jeff, where can people find your, uh, where can they follow you or find your work online? Do you, do you do much with social media? I do a little bit, you know, uh, most of what I do with Instagram or Facebook, those really are the two things that I'm using. Um, um, And usually it's something I've done six months ago because I'm trying not to throw everything out while I'm doing it, especially if it's for a client. I I can't put anything up. Um, But the last thing I want to do is have somebody say, wow, look what Hogan's doing. Let's follow his white pickup truck down the road and jump in on it because people will do that. And, um, and so I kind of wait till it's winter to show the summer stuff and summer to show the winter. Yeah. But if I need somebody, if I need somebody to give me a phone call about my cougars or something, I'll just throw out a few cougar clips on Instagram and it really can, you know, kind of, it creates some interest it's the the power of social media right there isn't it yeah yeah Yeah. and you know i saw do that and um yeah and it's it's uh everybody can really get a a lot of attention to their work on instagram for sure i think that's really the one that i would recommend and but make sure you're uh 
make sure you're getting out there and you're making it happen. That's the key. And you can't wait for anybody to tell you what to do and where to go. You got to right. figure it out yourself. Yeah. No, it's all what... problem solving too. Is this industry is problem solving. And if you can't problem solve, you're not going to go that far. Absolutely. So, Words of wisdom right there. Words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time out, especially when you had a tree fall on your house. I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate you being here. And um, uh, I, what I'll do is I'll, I will put both of your, your Facebook and your Instagram links um, on the webpage, masterwildlifefilmmaking.com and jakewillers.com forward slash podcast. There'll be your episode page there. I will put the links there so people can connect with you and see what you're doing. Um, so, uh, you so, so important to do that. So uh, thank you so much again. I appreciate it. Cause I know you got a lot going on and are you heading out now into the, into the Hills? Uh, I'm going to go look at my roof. <laughs> right. And then, and then I'm going to go back to uh, Jackson hole where I is. That's my main residence. And I, I have to get back to, some beavers and some otters and um and just see if there's any cat tracks around so you know i kind of do the whole circuit with all my favorite species and, uh, fantastic well enjoy have a good uh, rest of your day doing that and um thank you again very much appreciate it you bet and uh let me know when you're in town in jackson i will i will do i'll give you a call sure. fantastic yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll go out for a little walk about there you go that sounds good i'll do it it's going to be right. in the next month or so so wonderful thanks right. jeff thanks so much you bet take care if you've enjoyed this episode of the master wildlife filmmaking podcast then please leave a rating and a comment and remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series future episodes you can find out more information about wildlife filming at jakewillers.com and if you're interested in starting a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry or being mentored to further your career, then please visit jakewillers.com forward slash mentorship. Thanks for listening.